0: If you've been with us the past several weeks, we've, we've, we've started this series called Ancient Wisdom for Modern Life. Ancient Wisdom for Modern Life. And what we're, what we're doing through this series is we're teaching some practical truths from the New Testament, but we're also finding some of those classic stories from the Bible that most of us have known since we were young, since we were in Sunday school age. And we're using those stories as a backdrop to support what we're learning um, from the New Testament. So today is, is much like that series. Today we're going to focus on... Our, maybe our last one of the series, these are the ones we've done so far, we've looked at delivered, yes, provided, nourished, protected, equipped, and last week we spoke about being emboldened. And today we reached number seven lesson of this series, we're going to call this Focused. Focused, if you have your notes, we're going to be in Colossians chapter three, verses one to four. Focused is where we're headed today, and you can tell kind of the backdrop of the story that shouldn't surprise you. Uh, we're going to get to that story towards the end of our lesson. But before we get to our text today in our lesson, you go, does anyone make Christmas lists still? Does anyone make... nobody? Christy does. A couple of us do. Okay. This is big when we were little. My kids love to make Christmas lists because they don't want their parents to mess it up. and Because sometimes we do. And so the kids will write down things that they want so we can get them the right thing. Well, I live in the North Country here, and I've lived in the North Country for the past year and change. And I, I like to consider myself a true North Countryman, but some people have told me I'm not. And I never will be, uh, because I come from the flatlands. But I decided to 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 ruminate and imagine myself as a North Countryman. What would be on my list, my Christmas list, as, as a true North Countryman? What would I put on my Christmas list? And I came up with ten things that I think a true North Countryman might put on their Christmas list. And so these are jokes, just to preface this. Uh, Number one thing a North Countryman might have on their Christmas list is he and she pickaxes. (laughs) Now, nothing says romance. Like going out with your sweetheart and cracking some ice together. And I just think a pickaxe would make a lovely gift for a North Countryman. Here's another one. Tall boots, long johns, and bold roast coffee. If you could get a package of those kind of things, Joel, I was thinking of you for that number two, that would be a great thing to give a North Countryman. Here's number three, a candle that smells like pine trees and meatballs. Now, if that candle existed, find it for me. I want that in my office. That would probably be a weird mix of flavors, actually. How about number four, a gift for the North Countryman, is a chunk of the old man of the mountain. If you could find it and validate that it came from the old man of the mountain, I think that would be a special thing to have in my office. Number five, cologne that doubles as tick repellent. So you can attract the ladies and tell the ticks to get lost at the same time. What a gift that would be. Number six, a flask for your maple syrup. So you can just sheepishly pull it out, of your, Christy. Sheepishly pull it out of your pocket and just drink a little maple syrup whenever you need it. It might be on North Catchment's Christmas list. How about this one? A drone with moose GPS. <laughs> um, if there are said moose, and they, they tell me that there still are, I want a drone to track them down. And I don't know what to do. Maybe throw a net over them, um, just until I can go and see one and take a picture of it. Not to hurt the moose. I don't want to hurt the moose. We definitely don't want to hurt the moose because there's only two left. Um, but a drone that tracks them down. Here's number eight. And Joel, you might have this already, but a flare gun that launches fireworks. You have that already. That's, Joel literally has that. I was thinking about that going in. If you were in distress and you had to send off a flare, why not jazz it up a little bit? You know, Put, put some fireworks in the sky. A, it would attract him, and, and B, it would be cool to see. So Joel already has that. He's like, cross that one off my list. How about this one, number nine? And I, I don't condone this, but it might be on the list of a North Countryman. Is a car that automatically cuts off people from Massachusetts. <laughs> Again, I don't condone it but it might be on their list. So, And number 10 thing that might be on a North Countryman's list is a bearskin robe and moose-skin slippers. Um, boy, can you imagine that guy? Bearskin robe and moose-skin slippers. Those are jokes. We're going to talk about something actually quite serious today, but we did a little icebreaker there because it's Christmas. Ideally, of course, we all know the greatest gift of all time came down, didn't it, to earth. And we're going to be able to look at that towards the end of our lesson today. But we're going to start at a passage that's really near and dear to me. It's Colossians chapter 3, verses 1-4. to 4. If you have your Bibles, join me there. I'm going to read these four verses, and this will be the basis for our teaching today. Colossians 3, one to 4 Paul says this. He says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Focused is where we're going today. Our three-point outline is going to be, number one, a crucial foundation, number two, an elevated vision, and number three, a renewed hope. Let's start with a crucial foundation. Now, I joked a little bit uh, with, with the icebreaker there, but I am not a... North Country men, until I moved here a little bit over a year ago, I had no ties to the North Country, to New Hampshire, or to New England. Um, my, my only ties were that I was moving there, becoming a pastor in the North Country, and that my family was coming here, and we actually had a baby girl here, Felicity. So my ties, my connection to, to the North Country all happened the moment that we arrived here. I had never even leaf peeped here. <laughs> never done it. I never went skiing in the North Country. I had never been to Chudders. Can you believe that? Until I arrived in Littleton, I didn't even know it existed. That's how lame I was. And now I realize the magic of this place. And sometimes when you don't have a foundation, it makes you feel a little weird um, that maybe you don't belong here. Now, where's Cheryl Merrill? I don't see Cheryl. Cheryl here today. Cheryl is the one. She actually wrote me a card one day and said, I want you to know you are a true North Countryman. And I don't cry, but I think a single tear rolled down the cheek (laughs) because she was the one to to embrace me that way and say regardless of where you come from pastor you are one of us now and I really appreciate that now sometimes it's not a big deal if you don't have a foundation sometimes it's incredibly important to have a foundation isn't it sometimes if you don't have a foundation then everything can go awry now I am not a builder I'm probably the last guy in the church that you want on your building team if you ever build a house okay I would just stare at you I would google something but I would have no idea what I'm doing. But I do know, and know know enough to know that every structure and house needs a good foundation, right? You start with that, in fact. It's so important. You don't, you don't lay one brick or one piece of wood until that foundation is built. In fact, you can't even put it on later, can you? You can't build a house and then later on go, hey, we need a foundation. Why don't we put that in? You have to start with a foundation. It's so important. To the structure and integrity of that house, of that building. Well, so it is with our spiritual lives, isn't it? If we don't have a foundation, it doesn't matter what we build. It doesn't matter how we build. It doesn't matter who we have around us to build. If we don't have a foundation, that house can collapse. And it was Jesus who reminded us of this. In the Sermon of the Mount, he he used this illustration to help us understand that what can happen to a house with with a foundation and what would happen to a house without a foundation. And he said, the wise man builds his house upon the rock. Now again, Jesus is the one speaking and he's actually referring to himself. But he says that. A wise man builds his house upon the rock. The foolish man builds his house upon the sand. Now, the houses can be identical. They can be just as strong as one, what the other one is. But, but one has a foundation and one does not have a foundation. And Jesus says in that scenario, if the winds and the waves come against the house without a foundation, what happens to that house? It collapses. It breaks under the pressure. It cannot stand without a foundation. But the house that is built upon the rock in this time is Jesus, No matter what hits that house, no matter what comes against that house, that house will stand, not because of the strength or the beauty of the house, but because of the strength of that foundation. And Jesus was reminding us of the necessity of having a good foundation. And I hope that's something you already know. But Paul is going to bring that up here again in Colossians chapter 1, because this is the first phrase he says. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, Now you might have a translation before you That's not the English Standard Version That's the version I'm using today And it might say since Since then you have been raised with Christ Those words can sort of be interchangeable Here in Colossians chapter 3 But the word since means You already have a foundation And therefore dot 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 Since or if Means maybe you should check Maybe it's worthwhile to make sure That foundation is set Before you build And I'm going to take that word if And I think I'm going to let it be a blessing to us today because I'm going to have us check. Really, I'm going to have us look inside the nooks and crannies of our soul and our heart and ask the question, do we have that foundation? Is that foundation there and is it secure so that we can build and build properly? It might surprise you, it might not surprise you that Christianity is the most prevalent religion in the United States. I decided to do a little bit of digging. Now this stat's a little bit old but it's probably still somewhere around there, at least according to the ones who made this stat. Estimates from 2001 suggest that of the entire U.S. population, 332 million people, about 63% of them is Christian. That is 210, approximately, million people. Now, I've said this to you before, but don't you think that if our nation had 210 million Christ followers, that this would be a pretty moral nation, a pretty righteous nation? nation a pretty loving nation is that what we have in our nation sadly it's not in fact it might be on the the decline so what's going on here is the stat wrong or is christianity not that profound does it not really help you become moral or become godly or become loving Mm -hmm. one of them can't be right and i would say wholeheartedly the stat is wrong in fact i would be Maybe impressed if it was even inverted. If it was 36%, I would still be impressed with that number. I don't think we have 210 million Christians. I think we have 210 million people claiming to be Christians, saying they've come from Christian backgrounds or they go to church semi regularly or they've heard of the Lord or they're not Buddhist or Mormon or Jewish, so they fall into the category of Christian. But is that enough to claim that you're a Christian? I don't think it is. In fact, Jesus is the one who brought this up. In Matthew chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount, once again, Jesus, toward the end of his sermon, said this to the people listening. He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, these are people on the last day claiming that he is their Lord. Jesus, you are my Lord, and I, I say it wholeheartedly, you are my Lord. Lord, Lord, I love you. I serve you you belong to me, I belong to you. He says, not everyone who does that will enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. But he says, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Basically, Jesus is saying there are people who are claiming that I am their Lord, but they're not acting like I am their Lord. They don't live as if I'm their Lord. They claim it, but they don't live it. Do you think that's a problem in our culture? I think it's a problem in the entire world there's people who's claiming Jesus is their Lord, but you wouldn't know it by their lifestyle. He says in verse 22, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? I mean, we made declarations of what was to come, predictions of what was to come, and then we put your name on it, Jesus. As if to say, Jesus has allowed us to understand that. Did we not cast out demons in your name? I mean, we spoke to those who were demon-possessed and said, in the name of Jesus Christ, come out. He said, did we not do many mighty works in your name? That could actually be translated to miracles. Did we not do things that could only be described as divine? You would say, boy, what a strong resume, right? They prophesied in his name. They cast out demons in his name. They did many mighty works in his name. And then Jesus responds in verse 23. I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So according to Jesus' own words, it's not enough to claim, Lord, Lord, we must have a desire and ability to do the will of the Father, and we must know Christ, and he must know us. That's important, isn't it? That's incredibly important. That is a foundation. That's a foundation that all of us must have, because we do not want the scenario to play out in our lives in the last day where Jesus goes, I'm sorry, I don't know who you, I don't know you. I don't know you, you don't know me, I don't have a relationship with you, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I don't want anyone that I love to face that scenario. So this is why we say such things today. So Jesus is reminding us that we will know someone's, the state of their soul, not by their profession alone, although the profession is fine, the testimony is good. We won't know a true Christian except from their fruits, from what comes out of their life. Jesus, again, said those words verbatim. Now, if you came up to a tree, an actual tree, and you saw apples hanging all over the tree, what would you assume about the tree? It's an apple tree. If you saw oranges hanging all over a tree, and you went up and what would you, the assumption you would make about that tree is it's an orange tree. Well, if you went up to a tree and there were no fruit whatsoever, you would struggle wondering if that was a fruit tree at all, wouldn't you? If you saw on the right side a, a seemingly good tree bearing all kinds of diseased fruit, wouldn't you assume That perhaps the whole tree is diseased? If all of the fruit hanging on it are diseased? Jesus is bringing this up, not not to get us to feel bad or to squirm on our seats. He wants us to have the foundation. He's willing to do the work in our soul so that we have that foundation on the last day because he loves us more than anyone could possibly love us. And so he says, it goes deeper than just claiming to be a Christian. So Paul says, if then, if you have been raised with Christ, if you know him and he knows you. Let's focus on this phrase. What does it mean to be raised with Christ? That's a pretty important phrase, isn't it? To be raised with Christ. Um, there was a movie of several years ago. I believe it's called The Prestige. I can neither say this is a bad movie or a good movie. I haven't seen it in many years. But I remember one of the quotes from this movie. Um, it was about two illusionists trying to outdo each other. And one of the guys who was, was in charge of one of the magicians said this phrase. He said, making something disappear isn't good enough. You have to bring it back. And so think about that as, as an illusionist, as a magician, to just make something disappear isn't enough. I mean, I could probably do that. You know, I could probably make something disappear. What I can't do is bring it back in a, in a profound way. And I thought that was an interesting quote, because here in Christianity, we have something so special that takes place, and I'm definitely not calling Jesus an illusionist or a magician. I'm simply saying that if Jesus had died only. And that's all that he did. He came down and he said, listen, I've come to die for you. I've come to die for your sins. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. Watch my, listen to my teachings. Watch my miracles. And then he died and that was it. And then he said to us, you will have eternal life if you believe in me. You will have eternal life if you follow me. And then he died and stayed dead. Would that be enough for us? To have great confidence on the other side? That when we die... We would resurrect and find life again? I don't think it would. In fact, Paul spends an entire chapter in Corinthians talking about this very argument. It's not good enough to die. Jesus had to rise again, didn't he? And thankfully, our Lord did rise again on the third day. He died and he didn't stay dead. He's alive today. He's alive in heaven, seated on his glorious throne next to the Father. And therefore, he says to us, when you follow me, you too will rise again you will have the eternal life that I came to offer this world. And I think that's an important thing for us to understand. In fact, in Ephesians 2, we find this. Paul writing to the church, he says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And he's talking to everyone. He's talking to Christians here in Ephesians, but he's referring to the whole part of humanity. Every single one of us were dead in our sins. And that is a tragic thing to hear. Not that we were badly off or that we had gotten a lower score than we had hoped to have received, we were dead, according to the mind and eyes of God. You were dead in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that is the devil, the spirit that is now at the work and the sons of disobedience. That how, that's how Paul starts chapter two of Ephesians to the church. And if that's where it ended, that's a very depressing tale. But he says in verse four, but God, being rich in mercy... Boy, aren't you thankful your God is rich in mercy? Not rich in punishment or rich in judgment. He is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead. Notice it, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This part right here is so important to what it means to be a Christ follower. You must be alive. You must be alive spiritually. You must have God's handiwork in your life. You must have God's power residing in you. You must have the influence of Christ's blood upon your life. Because when you do, it's a sign of life. And when you have that sign of life, you have the hope of the next life. So Jesus died, didn't he? He died. He actually died. It wasn't a kind of death. It wasn't a near death. Jesus actually died on the cross. But thankfully, and baptism represents this, that even though someone dies... If they're in the Lord, they rise again, don't they? And that, that will happen in the future. We will die. We will pass from this earth. And we already have spiritually died. That's already happened. But thanks be to God. Thanks be to Jesus Christ. We can follow the same model of experiencing death and rising again with Jesus Christ. And Lord willing, many of you here have experienced that. You're alive today. You've trusted in Jesus Christ you put your hope in him and he has made you alive and one day you're awaiting the resurrection when your actual body will be risen back to life and you will be given a brand new body to experience eternity with your God for the rest of time. And this is what enables us to not only just claim that he is our Lord but to do his will. This is what, this is what helps us not only claim that he's our Lord but to be known by Jesus. His salvation in our soul, making us alive, allows us those two crucial things that he is looking for in the last day. Did you do my will? And do I know you? And I heard a pastor say this. I'm going to steal his illustration. This is not my illustration, okay? But I thought it was so powerful and impactful about how how this, we sort of make sense of what Jesus is saying in Matthew 7. Now imagine you went to the White House in Washington, D.C., and assuming you could get past the lawn and to the front door, you knocked on the front door, and somebody came to the door, and you said to that person, I want to see the president, I want to talk to the president, in fact, I know him, I know the president, let me talk to him, I know him, he's a friend of mine, let me talk to him right now, do you think that would be enough for the president to come to the door and have a meeting with you, I, I would say no, I would say absolutely not, now, if, if, it, if we reverse it, and the president walks down the stairs of the White House, comes to the door and says, Let Todd in, I know him. Do you think that makes a difference? That's probably a big difference, right, for whether we can get in through the White House. Oh, I think that's similar to what Jesus is saying. There's going to be many in the last day saying, Jesus, I know you. I was a Christian. I mean, I have a testimony. I have a date in my Bible. I went to church. I have a whole bunch of religious resume. Jesus is going to say to those people, but you're missing the most important element. I don't know you. I don't know you. Your life is... My life is not within you. You don't have the foundation. And sadly, the many houses on the last day are going to collapse because they didn't have the necessary foundation they need. Why is Paul bringing this up? Why am I bringing this up? Because we love you. And we don't want anyone to experience their house and their life and their soul collapsing without that foundation. And it's going to be really important to what Paul is going to say next. But what it says in Acts chapter 4, if my screen will catch up there, it says salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Do you believe that? Do you believe there's only one foundation? Do you believe you can make your own? Do you believe you can find your own way to God? Or do you believe if Jesus Christ is not my foundation, my house will not stand for the rest of eternity? Because the prophets and the apostles and Jesus himself declared it boldly. Now, if you're sitting in the room tonight, in the audience tonight, and you don't know if you have that foundation, because you might not, because there was a time in my life that I questioned whether I had the foundation. I was doing a whole bunch of religious duties, but I didn't know if that foundation was secure. I don't want you to be upset and worried and anxious leaving here today, because you could find that foundation right now. That foundation, even though you have lived your life a lot of your life maybe, that foundation can be given to you this very moment simply by doing what Isaiah 45 says, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. And that's referring to the Christ. Turn to Jesus, look to him, put your eyes upon him and say, you, Christ, are the savior. You are the foundation for my soul. There is no other. And without your foundation, without your mercy, without your salvation, I cannot stand and trust in him. And the moment you do, that foundation is given to you. And when it's given to you, it cannot be moved away. Isn't that beautiful? That foundation will never be removed. Because that foundation comes from God. And I want to encourage you today to to look to Jesus, to trust in Jesus and no one else, not your own merits, not your family background, not some testimony your parents claim to have experienced when you were little. I don't think that's enough. I think you need to put your eyes upon the Savior and say, Jesus, you alone can save me. That's the crucial foundation. And that's important to the text. So let's go to number two, an elevated vision. Now, who do you look up to? either now or as a kid? And think inwardly. You don't have to answer out loud. But who did you look up to? Who do you look up to in this life? Now, if you were anything like me as a a young kid in the 90s, I'm dating myself there, uh, we would put posters on our wall. Anyone else do that? Put posters of people that you like on your wall, musicians, athletes, actors, whatever. Uh, Basically, people you look up to. Well, I'm going to share with you three men that I looked up to as a young man. And... Um, maybe they surprise you, maybe they don't. Uh, in fact, I think I had all three of these posters. Pretty close to it. In my room. That if you want to come in our room, you go, okay, he likes those three guys. Now, does anybody know who the guy on the left is? I'll be impressed if you do. Anyone? Ofer. Nobody. Okay. He's actually an, uh, an NBA Hall of Famer. He, his name is Chris Weber. He played for the University of Michigan. And I watched him ever since he was a freshman at college. And he, he was my favorite athlete of all time. Now, of course, Michael Jordan was big in the 80s and 90s, and I had his poster, too, because you had to, to be cool. And so I looked up to Michael Jordan. I just thought, man, if I could be half of what they are, I would be the best guy ever. But I also had another guy in my uh, collection there, MacGyver, um, even though I was pretty sure he wasn't real. Um, (laughs) Even to this day, I'm not entirely sure. Um... But I looked up to MacGyver because he had a lot of cool things about him. And I, I looked up to these three guys. These three guys were, I don't know if you called call them idols, but guys I wanted to be like um, when I was a young kid. And sometimes things change, don't they? Something happens in your life to change who you look up to. Well, that happened in my life. Um, somewhere in my mid-20s, I started to set my eyes upon Jesus Christ firmly and fully for the first time. And, and that changed the guys that I started to look up to. I didn't care about Chris Webber and Michael Jordan and MacGyver as much as I did before. I, st- I now had new idols. <laughs> and I don't want to use the word idol because that's a bad word. But new, new role models, new people that I looked up to, and, and these guys, besides having fantastic hair and beards, um, and I have a little bit of a hair envy going on there, and beard envy. Um, does anybody know all three of these guys? I, I'll, I'll give you some points if you know all. Spurgeon on the left, I talk about him a lot. Who knows the middle guy? I- <laughs> Good guess, because I think they could be brothers. It is not Isaac Newton. Um, Matthew Henry. Matthew Henry, maybe you've read his commentary, the Matthew Henry commentary. And the guy on the right, and I'm pretty sure Pastor Mark liked this man a lot, J.C. Ryle. J.C. Ryle. Um, They're all dead. Um, I could not have coffee or lunch with them, unfortunately. But but one common denominator with all these three men that I look up to um, was godliness and a desire for truth a desire for god's word was a staple in all of their lives i don't think i've ever learned as much about the bible except from jesus himself than what these three men taught me and there was another man that i looked up to in my life he was my father um, mel walker mel walker was six six so i literally looked up to him all my life didn't didn't we christy um till, till his dying breath i looked up to my dad he was six six so i looked up to my dad physically, but I also looked up to my dad metaphorically because my dad was a godly man and he left a tremendous legacy and example of what it meant to be godly. And it's a good thing to look up to people. It is. It's a good thing to have role models and examples of people to look up to. Well, Paul says this, if then you have been raised at Christ, and we talked about that, he says, seek the things that are above. Where, notice it, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Take your vision And set it upon someone high, someone lofty, someone godly, someone who can be an example for you in this Christian journey. In fact, set it upon the Savior. Set it upon the Christ himself. Set your vision above to where Jesus is. And he's given us an if-then statement. If you have the foundation, if Jesus is your Savior, and you would say that today, and you could prove it from the fruit coming out of your life, seek Jesus. It's simple, right? I can give that that equation to a child. If Jesus is your Savior, look no other than Jesus. Set your eyes on him. Keep your focus upon him. Well, I can't do that. He's not here. I mean, just like the guys I shared with you before that I look up to, they don't live upon the earth. How can I possibly look up to them? How can I possibly look up to Jesus? And we're going to talk about that. Because Paul is directing our vision upward, isn't he? Why would he do that? I mean, I don't tell anyone to drive that way. Unless they're looking down at their phone or something like that. But I don't tell them, you know, look at the sun or the clouds or the stars. I say, focus on the road ahead. Well, Paul says, no, I want to to take your eyes and I want to put them upward. Upward. I want you to, to visualize where Christ is right now. And I want you to set your mind and your focus on him and where he's at so that you can live this life properly. Do you think that's important? To set our mind not only forward on the path upon the earth, but upward. Paul wants to take our vision and our focus a little higher than that. You ever thought about this question, what is heaven like? (laughs) My children, we love to explore this question together. I think that's why I love having children is because they help me answer the questions I've always had. Ever since I was little, we have these kinds of questions. In fact, we had this question the other day come up going, what is heaven like? And we all thought about it together. We all thought about what the passages of scripture say and what what it would imagine it to to look like, you know, because that's a really cool thought to have. What is heaven going to be like? We know it's going to be amazing. We know it's going to be full of glory. We know it's going to be full of godly saints and people who loved and followed Jesus all their lives. We know the Lord himself is going to be there, but what is heaven going to be like? And I think that's a good thing to think about. I think it's a good place to start for what Paul is saying. But I don't think that's exactly what he means either. Because notice what he says, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now, we may not be able to fully understand what heaven looks like, but what do you think matters in heaven? Do you think sports matter? The new Netflix show? Politics on earth? What sort of things matter in heaven? And I don't think we have to search that hard to find out that it means whatever matters to the will of God whatever matters as far as godliness and righteousness and love are concerned, all of those things matter to God and all of those things matter to heaven. I think that's what Paul is saying. Set your mind on the things above that are going to last for all of eternity because we know not everything is going to last for eternity. Right? In fact, Paul goes on to say, set your minds on things that are above and not on things that are on the earth. He's not just telling us to, to do both. You know, to every now and then look upward and focus on Jesus. He's telling us to focus only on Jesus. Do you notice that? Take your vision and set it upward upon Jesus. Now, he's not telling you to literally look in the sky. He's telling you to set your focus on someone and something higher than what this earth can offer you. Maybe you've heard this phrase before, if you've ever been scared of heights or been somewhere high. What does someone always tell you when you're somewhere high? Don't look look down. (laughs) Anyone ever do that, tragically? and lose your bearings, because that's what's going to happen, right? If, if you're doing what this guy's doing on the right, and I really don't recommend that, um, it's not a good idea to look down, is it? Because looking down means you can lose your equilibrium, lose your bearings, and possibly fall to a tragic end. Well, Paul is seeing something similar to us today. Don't look down. Don't look down anymore. You came from down. You were dead. We've talked about that. You, your whole life was, was represented by dead things. Dead concepts, dead desires, dead sins. And then Christ made you alive again, if you've trusted in him. And because you're alive and because you're with him, Paul says, now focus on what's above. Focus on what's to come. Don't look down anymore. I think one of the best illustrations of this is Lazarus. I was able to find some flannel graph. Remember the flannel graph back in the day? Of Lazarus. Coming out of the tomb, if you know that story, Jesus heals his friend, Lazarus, who had been dead four days. Lazarus had been dead so long that his sisters are worried that if they remove the stone from the tomb, he's going to stink. I mean, he's been dead so long, this is not going to be a good situation, Jesus. Leave that stone right where it is. Well, Jesus said, remove the stone, and he yelled into the tomb, Lazarus, come out, come forth. And Lazarus came out of the tomb, wrapped like this. Much like a mummy would be looked like, wrapped in all these burial clothes. And Jesus said some, something to everyone standing there. He said, Unbind him and let him go. It seems obvious, right? If the guy's not dead, why would he stumble around life or the rest of the day looking like this? Jesus says, Unbind the man. Let him go. He's not dead. He's not dead. Don't make him function like a dead man. It's not good to live like a dead man. It's not good to be bound. It's not good to be laying there lifeless. It's good to be alive. So, live, Lazarus, like a person who is alive. That right there is Paul's instruction to us today. If you're alive, live like you're alive. Don't go back to dead things. Don't look down at dead things, dead concepts, dead desires, dead sins any longer. Set your vision upward where Christ is, the things that matter to God, the things that matter in heaven. We're not going backwards, are we? In fact, we can't go backwards. We have rear-view mirrors in our car, but I don't know anyone who sets their full attention on the rear-view mirror. That would be a dangerous thing, wouldn't it? To instead of looking forward, you've got your eyes focused, fixed, upon what's behind you. That's not a good way to drive it. it's not a good way to live in the Christian life. We are to set our minds and eyes upon where we're headed, not where we're coming from. Now, it's okay to occasionally look back and remember what God has done for you, where you were brought from, so that you never go back. But to fix our eyes and to dwell upon things in the past is not a good practice for any of us to do. We must look forward, every single one of us. And I know that's a struggle because I know it's a struggle even for me. I often get distracted in this life. I get distracted by what's happening, germs in the family, my own tiredness, my own weariness, things that are happening at the job. and Sometimes I look at the past and go, oh man, remember that? Remember what happened? Man, that was hard that's not the counsel from Paul today. Paul says, take your focus, Todd, and set it upward. Set it forward. Set it to where you're headed. Why, Paul? Because it's going to be helpful for you to do what you need to do as a Christ follower. I had uh, Kevin read this passage from Proverbs chapter 4 this morning, and the, the, the person speaking says, let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Make level paths for your feet. Take only ways that are firm. It's right out of the Bible. Look straight ahead. He goes on to say, don't look to the right or the left. It's almost like keep blinders on and focus your eyes upon Jesus and what's to come. Now, I will say, even as a pastor, that's hard to do. That is hard to do in this life when there are so many distractions around us that want our attention. And we might have more in this culture than even cultures before us because we have things like this. And I'm actually teaching from one today. So if I start playing a game today, you'll know why. Uh, I'm not. But, but this happens in our, in our culture. We get so distracted. It's almost like our attention span is so little, right? So small. I'm noticing that with my children going, man, that's going to be a challenge growing up is for them to have a focus on the right things. That should not say Romans. I don't know why it says Romans 8. But this is Colossians chapter 3. It says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Not because it's bad, To have focus, but it's bad to have focus on the things that don't matter. And I remember myself in my mid 20s doing that wrongly in every possible way. I was focused on everything else. Everything else. Literally everything else except the one who died for me. And that's when the Lord came to me and said, Todd, it's all backwards. You have to set your minds on things above. You have to set your minds on what's to come. You have to set your minds on the one who died for you, the one who knows what he's doing. Set your minds forward. Now, what if we were able to take a scale of all the things that matter to us in this life? All of them. You know, your family, your job, your hobbies, friends, the things you enjoy doing with your time, your money, your resources, your home and put all of those on one side of the scale. Now, that, that thing would go down, wouldn't it? Because those things are valuable. Those things are incredibly valuable. You put them all on one side of the scale, and that thing would drop to the floor because they're so heavy and they're so valuable. And you'd go there. That's why I do what I do. That's why I live such a way. Because all of these things are incredibly important, and I'm going to give my whole life to making sure that these things are great and can last as long as they possibly can. But then Paul tells us today, well, I want you to take one person. And I want you to set him on the other side. And I want you to see what happens. I mean, if I want you to really calculate. I want you to really use all your bearings and all your reasoning capabilities and, and put them next to each other and see which one weighs more. Could you live without some hobbies? Could you suffer loss of a job or family member and still go on? Yeah, you can. Can you lose Jesus and be set for eternity? Can that ever be removed from your life and you be okay? And the answer is absolutely not. And Paul is saying not that we need to focus on you losing your foundation. He says you need to be able to understand the value of someone so important to your life, so valuable that everything else in comparison is like nothing. Is like nothing. It doesn't mean don't focus upon what you need to do the day and have the agenda and the schedule done He's saying, don't let that be what fuels you. Don't let that be your bottom line for what you do and why you do it. Let Christ be your bottom line for what you do and why you do it. Let Christ. Let Christ rule and reign in your heart to where you say, Jesus, all of these things that I have, they're all for you. They're all from you. They're all for you. And if I have to lose them to follow you, so be it. Because you, at the final day, is all that matters. Do I have you? Yes or no? Verse 3 says, For you have died. All of us. Every single one of us have died. And again, if that's where the chapter ended, that would be very depressing. But it's not. He says your life is now hidden with Christ in God. I mean, if it's left up to you, this is what we get to produce. And it doesn't matter what you live for. Live for the best things. Live for your family. Live for your job. Live for success. Live for happiness. Live for riches. Live for prosperity. Live to be promoted in your job. It doesn't matter. They'll all die, won't they? Every single one of them will pass away. It doesn't matter what you give your life to. But if you give yourself to Christ, what does Christ produce? He produces life every single time without fail. If you focus your attention in your life upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you will live forever forever. For the rest of eternity. Because that is what our Lord does. He produces life. Paul again in 2 Corinthians wrote to the church and he says this. I love this verse. He says, For Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore we all died. The day Jesus died is the day we all died, spiritually. If we weren't dead already, Jesus went and died for us all so that we don't have to pay that debt that we owe to God. Jesus took that payment for us and he covered it completely. And so that old man is now dead, can be dead forevermore. And he died for all. Notice that that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Don't live for dead things anymore. Don't live for the old past things that you gave yourself to. Live for new, godly, righteous things that all come from Jesus Christ. And I'm going to ask this today. What is your purpose? Do you have a purpose? What wakes you up in the morning? What gets you going? What get you to go to bed at a reasonable hour? What wakes you up in the morning? I I used to not have one. I used to struggle with this question. If someone would have asked me, I would have said, I don't know. I don't know what it is. And I lived during the period of 9-11, when I was in young 20s. Um, When I was 21, 9-11 took place, and I was in a really weird place in my life where I was struggling with purpose, and I remember only being two hours from New York City, being impacted by that day, like most people were. I was greatly impacted by that day, going, man, I want to do something important. I want to do something big. Just show me what it is. I just want to give myself to something because there's something serious out there. And only a few years later, the Lord directed my vision to Jesus and said, Todd, there it is. And he's always been there. If you want to do something that matters for the rest of eternity, follow the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the greatest purpose of all purposes. For you, Todd, have died, but your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Do you believe that? Do you believe Jesus is treasure on this life and the next? That if you follow him now, you get all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge and truth and learning and understanding and righteousness and godliness and in the next life, he's literally the one that holds the keys to the gates of heaven. Set your eyes upon the life who is to come, who is treasure, Jesus Christ. We've talked about a crucial foundation and elevated vision. We need to end on a renewed hope today. Now, we're only a week away um, from Christmas Eve. We're eight days away from Christmas. This is an exciting time in the Walker House. Okay, and it's been exciting since February um, when, the count- <laughs> when the countdown began. But it's now really exciting because now it's in, now it's in vision, right, guys? It's like man, it's seven days from action and a lot of fun things are going to take place. So we are counting down. We're looking forward. We're asking parents. We're asking Alexa how many hours, Alexa, how many minutes, Alexa, Let's start this countdown because we're really excited. And I remember being a little kid, being so excited about Christmas that once December came, I didn't care what happened. I didn't care if I passed a test, failed a test. I didn't care if I got in trouble, didn't get in trouble. I didn't care what chores I had to do. My whole vision is focused upon Christmas because it's so good, right? It's so fun. It's so magical. December was an amazing time, and it still kind of is, well, for some of us. It's not Christmas we're looking forward to. In fact, Christmas for parents, sadly, sometimes can be in, in the way. It can feel like a chore to us, but retirement. Now now we got something, right? To that day when I could stop work and I could sit on the beach and I can make my own schedule. Boy, now that's something to think about. Start really hiking like a North Countryman. Um, that's going to be the day of days right there when that happens. And so we're all fixed upon it. going, oh, I have a bad job or I don't get paid enough. Or, I don't recognize it enough. Man, life is hard. Raising kids is hard. But one day, it's all going to change. So we set our focus upon getting to that end destination. Well, Paul says in verse 4, When Christ notices, who is your life? When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Is it possible that Jesus weighs more than Christmas and retirement put together? Is it possible that's where our real focus should be? Upon the one who literally is our life? Who literally is going to welcome us into glory if we belong to him? Paul thought so. And we don't know what heaven's going to look like. Not, Not specifically, not in detail. But it's going to be full of something, right? It's going to be full of glory, of splendor, of beauty, of magnificence. Things we've never laid our eyes on before. And Paul says, that's what you should be looking for, to the glory, to come. Not the things of the earth. They're petty, they're small, they're nothing in comparison to the glory. Set your mind upon the glory. Now, who are our 2020 vision people? Let's see him. Come on, let's all feel better about ourselves. And, well, there's not many of us. I think I have 2020 vision, but I haven't checked in a while. And I'm noticing reading is a challenge, so probably don't have that anymore. But I did have 2020 vision. Christy, we both had it, you know, which is nice. Um, but uh, vision, unfortunately, does not last permanently uh, well. But um, here's sadly what's happening, and I think it's happening probably as an epidemic for even people who claim to be Christians. Yeah, well, that's going to be really big. I'm just going to say it. Earth is in focus. Let's just put an E. And Christ is off in the background somewhere. He's blurred. He's there. Well, We go to church. It's not like we don't go to church. We go to church. We read our Bibles occasionally. Christ is there. He's in the mix. But our real focus, our 2020 vision, is upon the things of the earth. And Paul's going, yeah, that's backwards. Because it should be the other way around. Christ should be in center and focus of all that we do and all that we think. And the things of earth should be held in check with our focus upon what's to come. That's just a really good way to live. It's a really wholesome way to live. And we're all looking forward to the Advent, right? In fact, we're in Advent season right now when hope, peace, joy, and love are all a part of the season, and we love that. We're looking forward to the day when Christ came 2,000 years ago, which is wonderful. It's a wonderful thing to be reminded of that the Christ child came. But we know, as you reminded us last week, that there's not one Advent, is there? There's two Advents. Advent means coming. Jesus Christ came. We celebrate that. That's a good thing. But there's another Advent coming, isn't there? And we don't know what it is. We don't have the the clock or the calendar to know when that day is. But it is coming. It's a certainty. Scripture speaks about it over and over and over. Christ is going to return. And Paul is going, Boy, you really should pay attention to that day. You really should be thinking about that day when Christ is set to return. In fact, we sang this song this morning, and I, I didn't know that was playing, but I thought it was a perfect setup because Joy to the World, I, I don't remember who told me this, but I decided to validate it, and it's true that Joy to the World was originally written for the second advent of Jesus. Did you know that? Not about the first. It was not originally a Christmas song. It was written about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And if you sometimes look at the lyrics and think about the second coming of Christ, it's really cool. Now, of course, they worked for Christmas as well, but Joy to the World was written about the day that Christ would come back to the earth in all his splendor and all his glory and gather his church to himself. And the writer says, Joy to the World, the Lord is come. Is that going to be you when the Christ comes back? Joy to my soul because the Lord is here Let earth receive her King. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing and heaven and nature sing. Paul thought so. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Wow, what's something to look forward to? Man, if I could encourage you, anything this Christmas season is think about the glory to come. Think about the Christ to come and everything will fall into place. The only way life doesn't fall into place is if he's not centered. When Christ is center, everything falls into place. When he's not center, everything's chaos. And I proved it with my life back in the day. So let's answer these questions today before we're done. 2020 spiritual vision, is that something we have? Is that something we need? If so, is Christ's second advent as important to us as his first? Because it should be. We should celebrate the first, and we should look forward to and anticipate the second. Number two, are we acting as if Jesus is coming soon? Because he told us that in Revelation. Behold, I am coming again soon soon it could be sooner than we think are we acting like that and number three eternity is a long time isn't it eternity is not something you want to you, you can afford to be wrong about eternity is a long time let us be prepared by setting our vision on the one to come now I told you we were going to end in a story and I don't have time to teach a story but I don't have to thankfully because the kids are going to do it next week okay and I'm not here to steal their thunder not that I ever could but I, I was thinking about the word focus, and I thought about, man, who in the Bible had to stay focused? Well, I thought about the wise men. Didn't the wise men have to stay focused? If you know that story, that was a crazy night, wasn't it? They talk about silent night, holy night. It wasn't that silent. It was probably anything less than silent. There was a lot of things going on. In fact, let's read a few of the events from Matthew chapter 2. This is the story of the wise men visiting the baby Christ. In verse 1, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, who was a really bad guy, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Wow, what a great setup to this story. Is These guys not only were looking for the Christ, but they knew sort of the prophecy of the Christ that a star would come. And... um, I have a screen for that. There it is. And when they saw the star rise in the sky, the star reminded them of the prophecy about the Christ. The Christ must be here. The Christ is here because there's the star. Just as it was foretold in Numbers 24 and many other passages, these guys have connected the dots. That the Christ was going to come when these things kind of happened. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. Boy, these guys must have been on top of things. Because when the star was there in the sky over Bethlehem, these guys said, there it is. There it is. The Christ has come. Wow, the Christ has come. Joy to the world. Now, when King Herod, the king of the day, heard this, he was troubled. Now, that's a weird reaction to the king of humanity, the king of Israel coming to the earth. But he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him, which is one of the most ironic statements you can hear, about your king, your loving, peace-giving, eternal life-giving king coming to the earth. You're going, I'm troubled by that news. So he assembles all the chief priests and scribes of the people. He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. He sat down and had a meeting of strategy with his men. Okay, guys, looks it like, looks like the Christ has come. Uh, we knew this day was coming. It's here. Now what are we going to do about it? So he has a meeting with his, with his scribes, with his officials, saying the Christ is here, and they're all bothered and troubled by that. And they told him the prophecy. They told Herod, reminded Herod of the prophecy. He said, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, shouldn't that tell you something? If God had prophesied for hundreds of years before that the Christ was coming and the Christ came, maybe you should align your heart to that Christ, to that ruler, because he comes from God. But they didn't. They used this for evil. They knew biblical prophecy, but they didn't follow biblical prophecy with their heart and with their mind. Herod summons the wise men secretly. Now, the wise men don't know they're being sent on mission to do something evil. But Herod kind of connives and sends the wise men secretly to ascertain from them what time the star had appeared. He wants information. Guys, when did you see it? Where was it? Tell me specific. I want specifics of when and where you saw the star. And so the wise men tell him, this is where we saw This is where we saw it. And so King Herod now has that news. And then he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child for when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Is Herod telling the truth? Does Herod want to worship the Christ child? No, Herod's threatened by the Christ child. He's the king. And now the king, the real king, has come? Yikes. So Herod says, Well, I'm going to go find out where he is. And when you found him, come tell me so that I can worship him as well. <laughs> um, I'm picturing Herod back in the day with one of those Jesus fish on his, on his um, chariot. I love Jesus too, guys. Man, you, you're going to go visit him. Oh, man, I'm all you know, in on that. So as soon as you find him, text me. And let me know what he saw him, and, and I'll, I'll just come right away, because I want to worship him. And that's what Herod basically tells the wise men. And the wise men are none the wiser, weirdly enough. And don't really know what Herod's up to, and so they're like, yeah, okay, I guess we'll do that. So they go, and after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose. Notice it. Notice it and link it to our lesson. Went before them. They had to focus, didn't they? They had to focus on the star. They had to focus on the prophecy. They had to focus on where the Christ was. Do you notice the Colossians parallel there? Focus on what's to come. Focus on who's above them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. I bet that took a tremendous amount of focus. I bet their heads are swirling going, what's this thing about Herod? What's he want? What's his mission for? We're here to see the Christ. We're here to worship the Christ. And they had to stay focused. They had to stay focused on the star And what the star represented. And I think it's a brilliant parallel for what Colossians is telling us. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Which I think is one of the most amazing things to think about. These guys find the star, and they find the star exactly where it's where it is and what it's shining on. And good news of great joy come to them, right? And because guys this is how I picture guys celebrating when something really cool happens in sports. This is what I'm picturing with these guys going, yeah high-fiving each other, going, we found the star, the Christ child. You know, this is the best day ever. And going into the house, they saw the child, the Christ, with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Why? Because he's worthy of it, isn't he? He's a child, but he's the Christ. He's the Messiah, and we're gonna give our best stuff we have to him because he's the Christ. And maybe these things have become too cliche to us. We sing about them, we think about them. You know, there's little statues about it, little stories about it, little movies about it. But we you've got to remember what this must have happened, what this must have looked like when it happened. When the wise men finally saw the Christ child. And, and all their hopes were realized. All of them. As they're looking at a baby, going, that's, that's him. He's here. The Christ, the Messiah, is lying in that manger. And we're some of the first people to see him. What that must have felt like in their soul and in their heart. And thankfully, God was on top of the scene with Herod, right? Because Herod had evil in his heart. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. What did that night take? It took focus, it took a tremendous amount of focus in a not-so-silent night. And what's the point for us today as we close? I think it's very simple. If we have been risen, and we've talked about that, and I want you to search your heart today, if you've been risen from the spiritual dead, in order to focus our lives upon serving God by following Jesus. And I know I'm a pastor, and I know that's what I'm supposed to say. I'm a pastor. Give your lives to Jesus. Follow Jesus. Take your entire life and line up right behind Jesus. That's exactly what you expect a pastor to say. But pastor, that's your job. I mean, you do this for a living, but we got other stuff going on, pastor. We got, we're busy, we got families, we got jobs, things to do. That's going to take a tremendous amount of focus, isn't it? And thankfully, we have that focus because Jesus is coming back soon. And he expects to see us, not perfect, not flawless, not have never fallen or slipped along the way or ever had been distracted. He wants to come back and see his people alive and focused upon our life to come. And maybe this season offers us a gift to take what we're learning and take what we're remembering about the Christ child and put that into laser 2020 focus going from now on. I mean, we love two movies, right? Christmas time, Christmas Carol, It's a Wonderful Life, two guys whose perspectives were off and things changed in their life to sort of rattle their vision back to where it should be. I remember when that happened for me at age 26. The Christ came into focus and everything in my life made sense for the first time. And I said, Him. Him. It's always been Him. He is the one that deserves my love, my praise, my attention, my love, my energy, my money, my focus. And I lined my life up to him and said, Christ, from now on, help me, give me the grace to focus only upon you because you're worthy of it. And because I was made by you, I'm alive because of you, and one day you're going to come back to collect me and to get me and to bring me to the kingdom. So where's your focus today? Thankfully, there's fresh starts. Aren't you thankful God gives fresh starts? You could be really bad today. And God's telling you today, fresh start, new start, second chance. Line up your vision on the Christ and go wholly and fully for him. This Christmas season, I would remind you today to be focused, to take this gift of this season and remember all the things we've learned about the Christ child and remember one day he's coming again soon. Let's line up behind Jesus. And we'd be blessed to do it. So let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for you. Um, I wouldn't be here, Father, without this focus that you gave me in my mid-twenties. There's no way I would have come to this conclusion. But Father, by your grace, by your Holy Spirit, you aligned my focus. And maybe you're doing that for some in the audience today. Maybe for the first time, and maybe for the first time in a while to say you've gotten distracted, you've gotten distracted by things below, things on the earth that don't matter as much to things above, and reminded us to laser focus upon the Lord Jesus Christ because he's worthy, because he is our life, and one day he's returning soon. Father, it all makes sense to focus on Jesus. Bless us this Christmas season for that pure intention alone. Father, thank you for what you're doing in this church. We give you all credit and glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.